The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. For the longest time, we've been stuck in this almost country centric idea of corruption. This is perpetuated a lot by kind of like Transparency International's. Corruption Perceptions Index, this idea that corruption is something that countries have, there are corrupt countries, and there are sort of clean, transparent countries. This is not a good way to think about corruption in the modern age. There's, all of corruption is connected. Corruption is really, one needs to think about it more in the form of corrupt networks that transition through different countries. Corrupt networks will include a, a single network, just a single network, will include a you know, CCP operative, a Russian oligarch, a German businessman, or a, a, a British lawyer and an American lobbyist, all in one network that'll all be working together essentially, you know, with different goals. I'm Alvaro Marañón, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, April 5th, 2022. On June 3rd, President Biden issued a national security memorandum that established the fight against corruption as a core national security interest for the United States. The memo described the staggering costs of corruption, with it being estimated that acts of corruption sat between 2 and 5% from global GDP. The memo also directed U.S. officials to develop a comprehensive presidential strategy focused on anti-corruption. I sat down with Paul Massaro, the Senior Advisor for Counter-Cryptocracy at the Helsinki Commission, to speak about the United States government's latest anti-corruption efforts following the June memo. We discussed the latest developments in the efforts to combat corruption, details around the first-ever presidential strategy on anti-corruption, and also dive into what kind of messages these unified efforts send to other authoritarian regimes beyond Russia. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 5th. Paul Massaro on the United States' latest efforts to combat corruption. The past several months has been a crucial period for the United States government in its concentrated efforts to combat corruption, both at home and abroad. We've seen an important presidential memorandum that reclassified corruption as a national security concern, a global summit for democracy, a first-of-its-kind presidential strategy on combating corruption, and a multitude of state and local initiatives. But before we dive into the details of these developments, Paul, can you speak a bit about how we got to this point and what's changed over the years to lead to this shift? Sure, happy to. And I I guess the first thing I want to say, just right up front, quick disclaimer that I'm speaking here in a personal capacity. I'm not here representing any single commissioner or the commission as a whole. So with, with that said, yeah, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great question. I mean, what happened, right? I mean, if you go back just five, six years ago, you know, you will find practically no one calling corruption a national security threat. In fact, corruption was often thought of as a secondary development issue, uh, nice to have when you can have it, but otherwise just really not a priority. And now today, you know, what is this, April 4th, 2022, corruption could not be more important. It is, it is the top priority among the top priorities of the United States government. 
and in fact, we seem to be, you know, dumping resources into fighting it. So yeah, I mean, the question of, of what happened is, is enormous. Um, and I think that the really critical thing uh, is the people that have been working at this for a really long time, building the bipartisan coalitions uh, in reframing this issue for what it is, which is a national security threat. For a very long time, it was thought of very much in the development world. It was one of these things that was like a, oh, well, you know, we do it when we can. Um, but because of the constant drumbeat that this is a national security threat, and because of the great work that's been done by the anti-corruption community, and in fact, a lot of the national security community in reframing this, and, and then, of course, the Congress in reframing this, uh, we've landed at a position in which it is not crazy for the president to come out and say, uh, this is a national security threat. Absolutely. And regarding this reframing, the risk and dangers of corruption, you know, obviously we see facilitating crime as being one of the major ones. But has there been any new or lesser known risks that we've seen that helped with this reframing? So if it were just facilitating crime, I think that's where we were really like 10 years ago. You know, this kind of idea that, okay, organized crime and corruption are together, right? But, But really you need to move beyond organized crime for corruption to be a top national security threat. It is, it is involved with organized crime. Organized crime is a problem, but organized crime will never be on the level of like U.S. adversaries. Of course, organized crime often tends to be a appendage now, a, a way of doing foreign policy for certain U.S. A- adversaries, including sort of Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's mafia state and, you know, various uh, foreign policy initiatives of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and so on and so forth. But it was, it was evolving beyond that that made this happen. So corruption is actually the primary way through which our adversaries pursue foreign policy. And I mean, the, the really critical understanding here is that dictatorship is based on corruption. So dictatorship is all about having the guy at the top, and then he rules through essentially having his crony structure that do all sorts of things. They run the state-owned companies or state-influenced companies. They run the various government agencies and so on and so forth through paying them off by giving them opportunities for corruption. And then those individuals hold that money in the West. So something I'm always saying and always saying, and I think it's really, uh, you know, I hope becomes the gospel of U.S. foreign policy is this kind of understanding that modern dictatorship relies on access to the West. So the very new thing we're facing is not that dictatorship is corrupt. That's always been the case. But that that corrupt dictatorship now relies, that modern dictatorship now relies on access to the West. And this has created a brand new threat of corruption because this is corruption on an un- precedented scale. It used to be that you could, you know, you'd steal a little bit, the cronies would get paid off, you'd buy, I don't know, a mansion and in, in wherever in Calorama or your, your version of Calorama or something like that, right? But now you can steal billions, billions and billions and billions up to over, you know, I mean, the, the, the golden trillion, the, the, the over a trillion that's been stolen from the Russian people because the Western capital markets are just unbelievably deep. So you steal at a totally unprecedented scale. And then that money, once it's in our system, can be used to undermine the system. So in fact, it's used to, you know, engage in reputation laundering that is improving, you know, whitewashing one's reputation, getting close to elites, whether it be, you know, uh, major foreign policy commentators or activists or makers or whatever, or, you know, political parties or, or, or anything like this. Uh, and then you start to influence policy. So one of the things, one of the big reasons we failed to respond to Putin's provocations and Putin's deleterious actions over for over a decade, you know, ever ever since the invasion of Georgia, has been precisely that these individuals, these very corrupt oligarchs, have been in our society 
undermining it from within and influencing our decision-making processes with their fortunes. Yeah, that's quite interesting. This isolated, I guess, ecosystem of corruption is now becoming uh, globalized. It's going everywhere. And like you mentioned, we've seen uh, the sports wash and especially United Kingdom. We've seen Abrahamovich and other oligarchs being targeted more in the public. And and you spoke a little bit earlier about this, that real estate and some other sectors have been, I guess, more susceptible to these types of illicit payments. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's really, really critical. And I think, look, we talk a lot about the enablers of kleptocracy. And these individuals are are kind of the gatekeeper professionals that provide, essentially sell access to our system, right? And And I mean, these include lawyers. Lawyers are actually by far the worst. You know, it's a lawfare podcast. You know, I mean, everything everything comes back to lawyers at the end of the day because lawyers manage essentially all of the relationships of oligarchs. Oligarchs, the first thing they do is go hire the best lawyers available because then lawyers will go out and, and create the shell companies. They'll create the anonymous trusts. They'll, they'll you know, they, they may do it themselves or they might outsource this to a to a company and trust formation agent. They'll go out and work with the real estate agents. They'll go out and work with everybody, the accountants and so on and so forth. And in fact, if any pesky journalists or anything like that start to take a look at what you're up to, at the look at the way you're using this blood money, look at the way that you've stolen it and your relationship with the Putin regime or the or the Communist Party, whatever it is, then they'll also silence you. They'll, you know, something that you guys I'm sure are familiar with, with your, with your name and everything. They'll They'll go to court, you know, and they'll try to, you know, use these abusive lawsuits, these these slap, these strategic lawsuits against public participations to take you down and silence you. So so enablers are a really critical part of this puzzle. Without enablers, there are no oligarchs because without access to the West, you can't ever get to this kind of like oligarchy level. You'd just be some crony. You'd be stuck in the country. Um, and at the end of the day, this is actually what ends dictatorship. So it's kind of funny. Like if you if you don't have this access to the West, then cronies end up in these kind of like, you know, systems that are very oppressive and they don't have access to the stuff they want in the West. They look at Western elites and they think, man, like I'd like to live like that. And in fact, when you look at like, why did the Soviet Union fall? You have a lot of elites who are like, whoa, this this is not very nice. You know, we seem really behind. We're looking at the West. We can't travel there. We can't enjoy the lifestyle that they have there and so on and so forth. But modern dictatorship has kind of cracked the code. Now you can continue to repress your population, loot your population, treat everyone like dirt, but then the elites can just live abroad. They just live abroad, you know, and they, they push their money abroad and so on and so forth. So they effectively are able to have this kind of unlimited power, this, this arbitrary style power, but then they use the enablers to access the West. So one big thing to note about the enablers and how we got here is this kind of notion in the post-Cold War of change through trade, how the Germans say it, the Wandel durch Handel, you know, all this kind of idea that economic integration will eventually lead to democracy. This has been the the overriding, I think, foreign policy ethos of the last 30, 40 years. If you if you tune out the noise, then then really our foreign policy has been very consistent. And that is to say if we economically integrate, democracy will follow. Um, and in fact, it's happened in the exact opposite way. We economically integrated, the blood money came west, and actually diminished our democracy. So it turned out that integration with authoritarian regimes did not, you know, advance democracy, but in fact advanced authoritarianism and created this brand new globalized authoritarian capitalism. And that's where we are in 2022. We are seeing the end game of globalized authoritarian capitalism. And that's what we see, for example, in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. 
That's fascinating how they, even authoritarian regimes, which are typically cut off, can still evolve and adapt. And speaking about the spotlight, you mentioned there's a lot of mechanisms in place that kind of prevent uh, individuals from speaking out about this. And we've seen a lot of U.S. officials in Western democracies, most recently with the Summit for Democracy, uh, kind of come out with a unified voice and all denounce it. And can you speak about how important this is in shifting, like addressing the mechanisms within the roles of accountants and lawyers in this field? I mean, it couldn't be more important. I mean, some of this, you know, this this U.S. strategy on countering corruption, I mean, it's, I described it when it came out as the long telegram of the 21st century. That is, you know, of course, the long telegram, Kennan's famous memo that advocated containment to fight the Soviet Union. I mean, this is this is what we're at now. The, the future of the world, the future that we're heading in rapidly, hurtling toward, of course, we were heading there prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but now it's been accelerated. Now it's on steroids is democracy versus autocracy. And it's a it's essentially a second Cold War, but it's going to be very different in nature. It's not going to be two hermetically sealed systems, but rather two interlocking systems. It is not a battle between economic systems. It's not capitalism versus communism. It's political systems. It's accountable democracy versus corrupt autocracy. And that's, it's essentially what will be the manner of globalization under which humanity lives under? Will it be, will it be, a democratic style of government in which technology is, you know, bound by rules and laws, or will it be one in which, you know, informal structures and arbitrary regimes can use technology to dominate, just simply dominate the individual and engage in genocides and, you know, totally crowd out the private sector insofar as the private sector exists, it'll be under the control of the state and so on and so forth. So, I mean, this is, this is where we're going. And that's why this strategy on countering corruption was so important. It is really all comes down to countering corruption. It all comes down to taming the enablers. And it all comes down to ensuring that this kind of, that our system does not perpetuate this form of government. Again, this form of government, this form of authoritarian capitalism relies on access to the West. So we have to do essentially three things. We have to one, and these are all laid out in the strategy, but but one, uh, we have to clean up our act at home we really have to double down on values and put values before short-term economic growth. Uh, we have to ensure that we're not enabling kleptocracy, and that we can we can get into the actual policy prescriptions on how to do that. But essentially, it comes down to ensuring we're not accepting blood money. The second thing we need to do is actually target the kleptocrats themselves, which we can do through sanctions. We're doing a lot of that now with this newfound war on the oligarchs through law enforcement. And really, law enforcement, again, the Lawfare Podcast, law enforcement, you know, can be extremely effective because the, the, the big weakness, in a sense, that these authoritarian regimes have now is by, by putting their money in our systems, by being so reliant upon our financial system in particular, they have put themselves under our rule of law framework. So instead of letting them manipulate our rule of law framework, if we actually said, okay, well, you're under our framework, which means you're under our jurisdiction. You are susceptible now to our laws and actually enforced our laws against them. We could go, you know, to the stars. I mean, that's that's really a, a huge step. And that's what this klepto capture task force that we've just given, you know, uh, that, that Congress has just given $60 million to, that's what it's supposed to do. And this repo, I love this name, this Russian elites, proxies and oligarchs, multilateral task force, the repo task force targeting these oligarchs, that's what they're supposed to do is, is enforce these laws finally against these individuals. And then finally, 
we have to, you know, make a serious effort to rethink the way that we build the rule of law abroad because, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to do, but we need to look at ourselves, look in the mirror really hard and say, okay, what we did in the last 30 years didn't work. Just counting the, the courthouses we build, counting the police we train and so on and so forth, writing the best looking, you know, criminals, codes and so on and so forth. This does not work. You know, the rule of law is more than what's on the surface. It's, it's, it's indeed, it's the relationship between a people and their government. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's how an individual on the street thinks about their relationship with their rulers, you know? I mean, so it's, it's something that goes much deeper and it is inherently political. So we have to be willing to get political. It's interesting how, you, how the strategy framed this and how you spoke about it, especially focusing at home. Often people think when you combat corruption, it's outward looking, you focus on different countries, focusing on other multilateral, multinational efforts. But there's a lot of problems at home with corruption. And I wonder if you could speak about that in certain gaps or legislations that could fix this. Sure, of course. And, and I think it's it's really more of a transformation of the understanding of corruption, right? I mean, you know, I, you know, I call it cleaning up our act at home, of course. I, others call it that. But and, and we need to do it. We need to, you know, we need to be an example. But I mean, really, it's more of a reframing of what is corruption in the in the modern age? For the longest time, we've been stuck in this almost country-centric idea of corruption. This is perpetuated a lot by kind of like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, this idea that corruption is something that countries have. There are corrupt countries, and there are sort of clean, transparent countries. This is not a good way to think about corruption in the modern age. There's all of corruption is connected. Corruption is really, one needs to think about it more in the form of corrupt networks that transition through different countries. Corrupt networks will include a, a single network, just a single network, will include a you know, CCP operative, a Russian oligarch, a German businessman, or a, a, a British lawyer, and an American lobbyist, all in one network that'll all be working together essentially you know, with different goals. You know, the CCP operative will be trying to, you know, uh, advance CCP goals. The Russian oligarch will be trying to launder his reputation. The the German businessman will be trying to you know make some money. The 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 and so will the 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 American lobbyist and the and the British lawyer. So and 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 these sorts of things they all interact. So corruption needs to be rethought. I think for, I think we really get stuck in this idea that okay corruption is somebody paying a bribe to access services in a developing country. Wrong. That's not it. It's these corrupt networks. And then these individuals that are part of the corrupt networks are the corrupt actors. So corruption, as we like essentially facilitate it uh, in the West, needs to be understood in this facilitation role. It, it's, it's about essentially not asking too many questions. It's about uh, exacerbating kind of what we would perceive as the more traditional corrupt acts abroad. So, I mean, anyone, I think, would any American, any, any person would understand you know, tax fraud or procurement fraud that is sort of handing out contracts to your buddies or something like that in in Russia or China or wherever as corruption, you know. But then that money gets laundered and it ends up in the pockets of American lawyers who will, you know, use that money, you know, first of all, help offshore it, but then also use the money to silence journalists or to ensure that certain policies, you know, lobbyists that ensure that certain policies aren't adopted or something like this. You know, that is also corruption. That is an extension of corruption. That is blood money that's being used. So it's not the way we would typically think about corruption, 
because it's legal in our system. It's it's and that's and that's in a sense kind of the problem, right? I mean, it's it's totally legal, and you know we've never seen any problem with it because oftentimes the blood money hasn't necessarily been there. But once blood money starts entering the system like that, uh, it becomes an extension of the corrupt network. Uh, it becomes, in fact, the endpoint, the destination of the corrupt network in the way that the corrupt network is able to exert influence. So that's the way we need to be thinking about corruption now. It is transnational. We need to kind of move away from the notion of it's country-specific, blah 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 Corruption is a transnational phenomenon, and we need to be thinking about it in the foreign policy capacity. How do we prevent corruption from having a national security effect? That's what we need to be thinking about. How do we prevent it from influencing our national security? And then we need to put all the various policies and structures in place to do that. So regarding this corrupt network that you expanded upon, it's no longer binary us versus them or as clear cut as we used to imagine it. And part of the reframing as a national security interest also means additional funding. And you also spoke about the role of law enforcement here. And regarding these networks, we only know, we only can do as much as we know, correct? As in, we need to reevaluate shell companies. We need to look at FARA and these other outlets and mechanisms that can be, like you said, weaponized for uh, this blood money. And I want you to speak about, maybe you want to expand upon that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. So so we need transparency. That's really what you're you're pointing to. And I mean, we're, it's funny because the United States is actually historically a little bit better at, a, at accountability than transparency. And Europe tends to be a little bit better at transparency than accountability. So this comes down to essentially the 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 thing between getting the right laws on the books and enforcing those laws. This is this is kind of the the problem. Is if you have transparency without accountability, it just creates a a situation in which you're like, okay, well now we can all see the theft, but nobody's going to jail for it. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. nobody's nothing nothing bad is happening for it, and that actually diminishes confidence even further. And if you have accountability without transparency, then you have a system in which you have the best agents in the world. We, you know, we have, we have the DOJ and we have the FBI and we have people that are like really, really, really good at this and very well resourced. But I mean, you can be the smartest guy on earth. If you, if you are constantly stymied by anonymous shell companies, if you don't have access to databases that show you where this stuff is that you can, you know, access to, to follow the money, it's, you're still going to get nowhere. You know, so you're absolutely right. So beneficial ownership, transparency, abolishing anonymous shell companies, you know, these these anonymous shell companies that you can just make in any old state. That is to say, you know, just straight up, you know, in some states, it's easier, obviously, it's places like Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming. But, you know, you just go online, you create the company, you put in a nominee owner, don't even have to put the actual person that owns the company and so on and so forth. You run it through a bunch of different jurisdictions, you launder the money. American anonymous shell companies are really notorious uh, because they're really easy to do. It's all made at the state level. But this was taken care of. This bipartisan coalition that came together and passed beneficial ownership transparency legislation in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, in 2020, you know, that's done and now that's being implemented. So there will be, before too long, a U.S. beneficial ownership registry that essentially abolishes anonymous shell companies in the United States. But we're still in the United States missing due diligence obligations for gatekeepers. So in the USA, the only people, the only gatekeepers that have to ask questions about source of clients' funds are banks. Nobody else does. So lawyers don't, accountants don't, trust and company, service providers don't, real estate doesn't, unless first there's there's these geographic targeting orders that hit certain cities and enforce title insurers, which which are essentially these people that 
that ensure that, you know, the property is actually owned by the person in question, you know, makes them ask for beneficial ownership transparency information. So we need to expand that. That's really critical for the United States. And if we do that, it'll be pretty well enforced because the USA's problem is not with really with enforcement. It's with, you know, this transparency thing. Now in Europe, all of this stuff is on the books. They've, they've abolished autumn shell companies. They, they have gatekeeper due diligence requirements, all that kind of stuff, but it's very, very poorly enforced. And that's, that's their challenge, right? And that's, that's the same in the United Kingdom is, is, you know, and it's, it's, it's also just a part of the different political systems and how they respond to things. We have the very hard separation between the legislature and the executive and so on and so forth. They don't, uh, in, in most of their democracies. So, you know, actually, Enforcing the law there is a much greater challenge, and getting the resources behind that is a much greater challenge. But this is a place where we can really work together. The EU and the UK and the United States, we can all come together in Canada, all come together and kind of help one another out here with what we're strong at, what we're weak at, and get the job done. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend 
delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you speak about how we had bipartisan support in the most recent legislation to combat the issues with shell companies. And moving forward, do you think we'll have this continued bipartisan support to enact substantive change both at home and abroad? Yes, absolutely. The bipartisanship here is really one of the most extraordinary things. And I mean, that's the, the, the coalition that has come together around counter-kleptocracy, around counter-corruption, is just wonderful. It's all across the political spectrum. It's national security guys. It's, it's law enforcement. It's economists. It's, it's all the way up, down, right, left, center, everyone. You know? and, and that's been how we've been able to get this stuff done. And that's been a product of the reframing as a national security threat, right? Um, so previously, you know, there had been partisan issues around some of this kind of stuff. I think a, lo a lot of the stuff that people kind of like, uh, I think, generally understand as kind of business regulatory, you know, those are those that are anti-business regulatory, those that are pro-business regulatory and stuff like that. Um, and there was very little movement because that's the way it was framed. It was framed as a business regulatory issue, but it's not. It's not a business regulatory issue. It's a national security issue. Um, and that's what's changed things. So. I do anticipate that the bipartisan coalition will remain around this. And it's really more than bipartisan. It's really, you know, everyone coming together around this. And the questions are more how these very technical, very important changes ultimately look and how they're implemented rather than do we support them? Because, because the support for these issues now seems to be very, very much there. 
And the blueprint for combating corruption and this vision was outlined in the U.S. strategy on countering corruption. And like you said, this is a monumental first of its kind type of strategy. Can you just give me an overview on how significant this really is? Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the strategy on, on countering corruption is really the culmination, I think, of a lot of work that's been done over the last years, including the passage of Beneficial Ownership Registry uh, legislation, right? I mean, that that was the first great bipartisan victory um, that kind of heralded this new approach to national security that essentially said, okay, corruption is a national security threat and we have to fight this as a national security threat. Um, and that means implementing this sort of legislation. That means passing these sorts of laws and so on and so forth. So uh, that went to, as you say, this memo uh, declaring corruption as a national security threat, uh, and then into the strategy on countering corruption. So uh, we we kind of already talked about the 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 what you know what is in this strategy and so on and so forth. But that's that's where we are now. I guess I guess I, I should say that the strategy was extraordinary. But 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 now we're even we're even going on, you know, beyond that because of Putin's. The Russia's uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? So it, it's it's suddenly like a lot of what's in the strategy has like immediately been implemented because it's become top priority as we try to figure out how to best respond to Putin's just totally unprecedented aggression. And I think that that's kind of like this is the right response, right? I mean, this war is the product of unbridled corruption. It is the product of, you know, over a decade of essentially Putin feeling like the West cannot challenge me because I have been able to capture the West's elites. And that, that, that kind of issue of elite capture, that's kind of like what, that's, that's the way that autocrats kind of take economic integration and turn it on its head. And that's, that's been kind of the refutation, let's say, of the, the liberal economic integration theory, you know, this idea that, okay, we economic, we economically integrate with anyone that no one fights anymore and never it's a democracy. Well, in fact, if you capture the elites of the West through strategic corruption, through targeting individuals that have access to the levers of power, then you can prevent response. You can make them dependent upon you. You don't need to take over the whole economy. Now with China, there's a little bit more of that, right? China's actually got really serious market access leverage. Uh, it's a very important market. Russia isn't even like a very important market. I mean, now now we see all these multi multinational companies, you know, vacating Russia as if it's nothing. Just you know, just just yeah. heading on out, like 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 no problem. As soon as these sanctions are put on, because they want to avoid the sanctions risks. So, I mean, the only and the only reason we're in this situation, the only reason we've seen the Western unity, the only reason that we've seeing this massive implementation, the sudden implementation of the, of the strategy on countering corruption is because the Ukrainians have forced us to do this. They've, they have shown us what it really means to fight for our values. They've, they've, you know, they're over there fighting tooth and nail for things that we claim to believe in, you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, it's, it's really the, the valor, the bravery of Ukraine has, has forced us to take a hard look at ourselves and, and implement a lot of this stuff that we otherwise wouldn't have implemented. I, I do think that Putin, in a sense, had the right idea for undermining the West. If the Blitzkrieg had succeeded, right, 
if if Kiev had fallen, if Zelensky had taken the ride instead of asking for the ammunition, you know, the West would have accepted it as a fait accompli, would have essentially, you know, been even deeper in kind of this depression. It would have really hurt democracy seriously, you know, and strategic corruption would have done its job. I mean, we owe the Ukrainians an enormous debt for the way that they've essentially forced us to wake up and confront this corruption that we otherwise would not have confronted. Absolutely. Their efforts have been tremendous. And going from here, we spoke about how, again, Russia accelerated this strategy's implementation. And at the same time, we've seen a multitude of coordinated actions uh, from the FinCEN alert to the kleptocracy asset recovery rewards program. Can you expand upon what the importance of these initiatives are going forward? Yeah. So the this is, you know, we talked about the klepto capture, we talked about repo, the kleptocracy asset recovery rewards program is, of course, this, this was actually legislated by Congress, again, in the National Defense Authorization Act 2020, that provides, you know, like, like, like there are other American rewards programs, it, 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 it provides whistleblowers an incentive to come forward and sort of sh- show us the money, you know, show us where the money is hidden, and then you can actually get a cut of that money uh, when the money is recovered. This is a very classic American whistleblowing incentive program. Uh, America actually, believe it or not, invented this form of incentive program with the False Claims Act uh, back in the day during the Civil War. It's very, it's very cool, actually. The Union soldiers were, the Union Army was being sold these rations that were being like filled with sawdust and stuff like that. So the Congress legislated a rewards program uh, that would that would incentivize these individuals to step forward, and you know, fraud against the government would be revealed, and you could claim a cut of the money recovered. The famous line at this in this period was, "It takes a rogue to catch a rogue," which is which is a lovely uh, you know Americanism. And these these rewards programs have now been applied to all sorts of things. There's a Dodd Frank rewards program. There's a, you know, now this kleptocracy asset recovery awards program. There's a whistleblower awards program for corporate fraud and so on and so forth. So, you know, these, these things have been built around whistleblowers are so critical to making almost any case, particularly at a time when we don't have a lot of databases to look at. So any financial fraud case, pretty much any, any corruption case has a whistleblower at its heart, pretty much everyone, because there's, because again, you can have the smartest people in the world, but without the transparency, you're not going to know anything. And, and even with the transparency, once we get to once we get to that point, uh, we you know we still will need whistleblowers to step forward and kind of tell us where things are to get started as you build the case. So, whistleblowers could not be more important. Now, what is so important about these oligarch task forces, about this kleptocracy asset recovery rewards program, about about the sanctions on oligarchs and so on and so forth, is we are seeing the beginnings of a self-sustaining program to go after oligarchs, to go after these individuals. And that is fantastic because that's really what it's going to take. We need to get to a point where we have this cycle, essentially, that you, you do the cases, you get the fines and penalties, and then those fines and penalties you know, fund the next cases. This is actually how the Security and Exchange Commission functions, and and the SEC is like, you know, gold standard in policing corporate conduct. That it does these penalties, and these penalties go back into the system and fund the SEC further. So we need the same thing for oligarchs. We need the same thing where we've got this 
self-perpetuating system, whistleblower step forward, you make the case, you recover the money, you know, the money funds the other investigations. A lot of the money, of course, we want to return, but some, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money. It's amazing because this, this, this is the, this is the, one of the greatest things about this national security approach is it's, it's actually a really affordable national security approach, you know, for the price of two F-35s, you know, you can prevent the need for any F-35s by, by, by stopping the wars before they start, by attacking the corruption, by deterring. If you actually attack the corruption, you deter regimes like the Putin regime. You don't allow them to get to this point where they feel totally confident with creating, you know, with with overthrowing the international order and invading their neighbors and and and, and really committing genocide as we've as we've seen over the weekend in, in in Buka. Absolutely tragic. This is what we're seeing now, and that's why that is an advancement beyond even that envisioned in the counter-corruption strategy. So this is where we need to get. Where do we win? It's when we have this in place. It's where we have the whole legal framework and enforcement framework and we're with all our allies. It's where, you know, oligarchs are shaking in their boots. They know they're going to get got. And it's where no one in the United States, no professional, no lawyer, no former official, nobody like that would ever consider taking blood money from dictators. That's where we need to get, you know, blood, dictator blood money should be viewed as the same way Soviet money was viewed. We should, we should see it as absolutely unacceptable. We should be shaming one another for taking it. Peer shaming is a huge thing. So, I mean, half of this is legal. Half of it is getting the right policies in place. But another half of it is normative. Half of it is narrative. Half of it is getting to a point where we just think it's unacceptable where you'd, where you'd, if you found out a friend was doing it, you'd be like, what are you doing, man? That's not right. You know? And, and that's where we're going to get. That's, that's where we're headed rapidly. Um, but it's still going to take some time and it's going to take beating the table on this. And it's going to take putting the policies in place. And it's going to take some big profile cases and it's going to take establishing this direct causal connection between corruption and massacres and mass graves, which, which to anybody that's worked in this field understands this connection intuitively. But remember, this is why corruption is so deadly, because it's corrosive, because it kills slowly. It's poison. It destroys things over time. It destroys democracy over time. It destroys the rule of law over time. It doesn't destroy it immediately. It doesn't explode. It's not like terrorism. You can't get a ton of, you know, you can't get a ton of political will behind it all at once. Although we're seeing that right now, thanks to having set up over the long term a network framework and the incredible work of journalists, really, uh, in, in exposing this over the long term. And then the sudden, you know, invasion of Ukraine uh, that has been connected to corruption because the, the framework was already there, because the framing was already there. Um, so people are understanding this now. Now we're going after the oligarchs. And then the American people start asking, who are the oligarchs? You know, and then, oh, they're corrupt guys and corruption and so on and so forth. So we really have a window of opportunity right now. This is a policy window to solidify and entrench anti-corruption as, if not the number one priority, a you know top three priority in U.S. national security for the foreseeable future. And we need that badly. So this optimism is quite welcome. It's quite proactive, forward-looking, uh, which is great. But what kind of message do you believe this sends to other authoritarian regimes? I know Russia's in the spotlight, but China and these other states who aren't as active right now, at least outward-looking, what kind of message do they think they think this sends? It's a message of deep, deep, deep deterrence. 
It's a message that we have woken up to your game, that we understand it. Authoritarians win when we sleep. There is no way, because of their reliance upon us, because of the way that modern dictatorship functions, their ultimate goal is to undermine us from within. It's to subvert us, okay? It's subversion. Because they can't win when, when anything is in, out in the open. That's, that's when democracies win. Democracies always win because we can always, we're, we're more prosperous. We have much more political will. We can mobilize our populaces in a way that nobody else can. There's just a million reasons why when things are out in the open, when things are transparent and accountable, democracies always win. And this is, you know, you find this in, in history over and over and over and over. But they lose when there's subversion. They lose when you can destroy them from within. And that's what we need to be extremely careful of. And that's actually where Putin and the CCP were. If you'd asked me just five, you know, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, prior to the prior to February 24th, if I was optimistic about the direction of the fight against corruption and the direction of democracy, I, I would probably give you a lot more of a of a wishy-washy answer. I mean, I I I don't think I was this optimistic, and I actually think there was a good argument to be made that democracies were losing, that that we were that we were becoming. A, certainly, many of us that focus on this were becoming, you know, uh, much more aware of it, and DC was becoming much more aware of it. But the you know the populace at large wasn't, and that this you know the push to divide, you know, democracies, and divide you know continue to 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 try to get democracies to focus on internal divisions and so on and so forth and subvert them from within was actually really effective. It was really effective and had been for, for quite some time, but now things have really changed again, because Ukraine woke us up again, because, you know, Zelensky's bravery and heroism and the, and that of the Ukrainian people has reminded us what we're all about. I mean, you, you look now 80% of Republicans, 80% of Democrats support Ukraine and oppose Russia. I mean, you know, just the, that kind of polling, <laughs> you know, that Tremendous. kind of, that kind yeah. of support, you know, was not there just five weeks ago. You know, it, it, it simply was not there. So, so I mean, in a sense, Putin has, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I've kind of said, Putin's given us a mulligan. He's kind of, he's kind of, he, he, he had the right strategy in mind. You know, they were doing everything right, him and she. They were, they were, you know, the, the autocrats international or the, or the thug, the thug intern, you know, was, was, was doing it right. They, they understood how their regimes sustain themselves. They understood the ultimate goal. They understood how to subvert the West and they were doing and, and subvert democracy really. And they were, they were doing an excellent job of it. And our responses were marginal. They were getting there. We were doing okay. Some of us were paying attention, but there were still a lot of reasons to be like, we're not where we need to be. We're, we're you know, a lot of it's lip service. We're not following up what we're saying with action. But now that has changed dramatically. So I think, again, I think that Putin, Putin really screwed up. And in some sense, this is, this is how autocrats screw up. This is how autocrats screw up. They, they, they repress, they destroy dissent in the country. And again, dissent is democracy's, in fact, greatest advantage is we have dissent. Dissent is, is how humanity moves forward. Dissent is the most important part of uh, the human experience. But um, they destroy dissent, they repress dissent, they kick it out of the country, they jail it, and so on and so forth. And then they lose feedback. So, you know, I've read a million times over, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that Putin legitimately believed 
that, you know, if he invaded, he'd win, that he would be welcomed as a liberator, that that he would have support and so on and so forth because he destroyed dissent, because he, he threw out anybody who would tell him the truth, you know, um, and he put himself in an isolated box um, where he could no longer get at reality. Um, and now he's thrown out two decades of, you know, what from the evil standpoint is a very impressive work on his part, what is co-opting a former German chancellor co-opting a former uh, Gerhard Schröder, you know, co-opting a former French PM, you know, uh, Francois Fillon, co-opting multiple European leaders, co-opting, you know, law firms, co-opting American business, co-opting Google and Apple to censor the election and so on and so forth. He, he really had the thumb on the West, and the West could not figure out how to respond because entrenched interests were serving him. And that's that's Russia, right? That's that's an economy that's not China. You know, with Xi, it's even worse. As you say, other dictators, with Xi, companies really rely on that market and will do much of what the CCP says, will lobby Congress on behalf of the CCP in order to maintain market access. There was an excellent story about that recently. And so on and so forth. So it's even worse in those cases. And yet Putin threw it all away. He threw it all away because autocracy at the end of the day is self-destructive. It is, you know, and, and thank goodness for that um, in, in one sense. Uh, in another sense, it's an awful price to have to pay, right? I mean, it's, and, and the Ukrainians are paying it. And it's awful. I'm, I'm glad that we're united now. I'm glad that we recognize it now. But I wish it didn't take this. So I'm hoping that we really take a good, hard look at ourselves and say, okay, it, it's not going to ever happen again. We're not ever going to pay this price again. We're not ever going to let anybody else pay this price for us. It will not happen with Taiwan. It will not happen. And I hope that the West is absolutely 100% certain we will not let this happen with Taiwan. We will not let it happen with any other democracy in the world. We will not let it happen again. And, I, and you know, she, who has similarly... Uh, destroyed all dissent, has destroyed feedback. I, you know, there's there are things that you can't ignore, even as a dictator, even as a dictator that's that's purged dissent. He's got to be looking at Ukraine right now and thinking, "Wow, wow, you know, this was this was supposed to be. I endorsed this invasion. This was supposed to be a a, a quick operation, a blitzkrieg. Putin told me this was a blitzkrieg, and yet we're over 30 days now, and it's a quagmire. You know, the 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 Russian military has no food, no fuel." No training is getting defeated uh, with small arms. You know, total victory for Ukraine is possible, and and Russian defeat is is virtually certain to some level. It's 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 hard to say yet what the defeat will look like, but Russia will not achieve its political goals, which was the you know uh, submission of Kiev. So, I mean, she has got to be thinking, oh my God. You know, we had it wrong. We had the West wrong. They're not as subverted as we thought they were. They're not as down as we thought they were. And, you know, I mean, I think the truth of the matter is we were until Ukraine, until the Ukrainians showed us the way. And that can really change things in democracy. So I think the answer, you know, long way of answering your question, but I think the answer is, you know, for now, we have this moment of opportunity for now. We have remembered what we're about, which we're not about, you know, economic integration and commerce, uber all and whatever, 
has been our last few decades. I mean, you know, the founding fathers, you know, did not wage a revolutionary war and the various wars in Europe that led to democracy were not waged in order to improve GDP by two or 3%. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, they were waged to fight for basic rights and human dignity. And that's what we've always been about. Basic rights, human dignity, and democracy. And now we're remembering that. And I'm really hopeful that it sticks. And I, you know, to me, in my career, I'm seeing it stick more than I've ever seen before. So I think there is a lot of good reason for hope. But it's, but of course, hope is not enough. We have to work extremely hard as well. Hopefully this this period of optimism uh, will be leveraged for the positive for more transparency and accountability, both at home and abroad. Thank you, Paul. This has been a fantastic discussion and thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alvaro. And uh, till next time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. And look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. And your sound engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.